Uh, growing up, one of uh, my favorite TV programs was The A-Team. <clears throat> uh, this was on a, uh, usually on a Saturday night, and it was a great uh, fun to watch it because uh, thousands of bullets were fired, but nobody died. But what, always, what you always, always was waiting for was the A-Team getting captured and them getting locked in some, some room. And the question is, will they escape? Will they triumph over over the baddies. Well, inevitably, they were always locked in a room with a settling torch, tools, all sorts of things. And so they were, they used, they were resourceful men and, and they used their strength and ingenuity to bust out of any fix that they found themselves in. Well, when we come to the Christian life, and when we come to life just generally, there are fixes we find ourselves in. There are times when we feel the lack of resources um, think of, think of uh, nursing somebody with Alzheimer's, uh, your, your partner, your, your husband or your wife, and as you see their memory loss and all the struggles that endures, sometimes you can think to yourself, well, is there any hope? Is there any, is there any way out? You feel like the psalmist in that we, we looked at last week, who was in a pit and it was bleak and there was no hope. There are many situations in our life which feel hopeless and we don't feel like the A-team who have resources to get ourselves out of it. Life seems to look bleak. Well, last week we saw this psalmist and we saw his bleakness and we saw him holding on to God and his covenant. That's what kept him secure was God's covenant word uh, to him. Um, we saw this prayer that gets repeated in, in, in this Psalm 119. The psalmist says, we find the psalmist talking to God about what God's words mean for his life. Life last week was bleak and dark, but he had a God to talk to, a God who would rescue him. Well, this week we find out more about his hope more about what kept him standing firm in that darkness. And so tonight, I just wanted to see two things in these verses that we've just read. From verses 89 to 92, I wanted to see God's words firmly fixed the world. God's words firmly fixes this world that we're in. And then I want us to turn and I want to see that the second half of the psalmist, he shows us that God's words firmly fix the believer. The same words that fix this world, that brought this world into creation, are the exact same words that keeps the believer firm in his faith. So that's what we're going to be considering tonight. So let's turn to uh, verse 89 and 92. God's words firmly fixes the world. Well, the psalmist says, Your word, O Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. Here he immediately starts off and says to us that God's word is fixed in the heavens. It is ready for duty. No one can shift this word. No one can uh, triumph over this word. This, word. this brought to mind, uh, if you've been following the news, and the, the Greek crisis. Every week there, is, there are new talks, new words spoken. Hundreds of words have been spoken, and yet there's still a crisis. None of the words 
have brought really any security, any certainty. Well, here the psalmist tells us that God's words are firm and they are secure. They're in the heavens. Nothing can triumph over them. Nothing can defeat them. They stand from the beginning, before the beginning of time, and they will stand when this world comes to an end. That's his first, that's his first doctrine, if you like. God's word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Well, he turns to another truth in verse 90. He says, Your faithfulness continues through all generations. You establish the earth and it endures. In other words, he says, God's words makes firm this earth. It brings stability and it brings order. Again, there's nothing that can, can destroy this world. No government. Uh, Satan can't. Why? Because the psalmist says God is faithful. He is sure and steady. So God's word is in the heavens, he says. And then he says God's word creates, creates this world that we're in. And it is a sure and steady word. Well, the third doctrine he gives us, or the third truth we see in verse 91, he says, your laws endure to this day, for all things serve you. All that God has made, the psalmist says, from the atom to the mountain, from the cell to, uh, to the human heart or brain, God has made to serve him. So this world, that's, it, this word that is in the heavens, that creates this world, is a, creates a world that is to serve God. Uh, we read from Hebrews 1 earlier, and the psalmist, though he has not um, envisaged Christ, he longs for Christ, and we hear the, the, the Hebrew writer say these very things. He says, the Hebrew writer says, Christ upholds the universe, that he is the source of all coherence. Um, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by powerful words. That's what we've seen in the psalm. His word sustains this world and his word serves it. And in the New Testament, we find that that word is Christ. We also see this, this in, in, in Jesus' life. life. Uh, if you're familiar in Mark's gospel, there's that account of Jesus calming the storm. He's in this boat. They are crossing the other side of Lake Galilee and a storm um, whips up and he's with his disciples and Jesus is asleep in this boat and the storm is raging and the disciples are so terrified because they see that this storm is going to crush this boat and it's going to end their lives. They're going to drown. So they frantically wake up Jesus and say, do you not care? Well, Jesus gets up and he speaks just just a calm word, he says, to the storm, be calm. And instantly, the storm dies down and the water becomes calm. That, that word that Jesus speaks is the very word that controls this creation. For the, the storms and the water for his disciples, for the Israelites, was a terrifying thing. It was something to be frightened of and feared. And here, here in the boat, there is this man, Jesus, the Son of God who has can complete control over the chaos and the, the threat in this world. 
So we live in a world that's under siege. But the psalmist says the only thing that can keep us stable is God's word. See, this word is powerful. It is, it is unbelievably powerful. Um, I worked as an engineer for 11 years for a firm. And I was part of a, a design and research team to design a, a, and, and develop a new product for our firm. And it took us 10 years to design this product. It took computer scientists, it took physicists, it took uh, mathematicians, it took uh, computer software engineers, it took electronic engineers, it took mechanical engineers, it took production engineers, uh, there were management needed, uh, there were hundreds of other people involved in this project. It took millions of pounds, and invariably we had to make countless prototypes. And there's always problems. And even when you think you've solved all the problems, there's more problems arise. It puts God's powerful word into contrast, isn't it? The brightest minds find it incredibly hard to create and maintain something. Bright people with great expertise. And yet God can just say a word and the whole creation comes into being. And all its, all its beauty and all its splendor. He keeps that world in existence with his very words. He can enter that world and he can speak to the storms and he can calm them. And that's what the psalmist has got in mind. He, he has this, this God in his, in his mind who he knows is the one who created everything around him and sustains everything by his words. That's what this gives the psalmist complete security. I think the psalmist helps us see two things. The psalmist shows us that this word is not unbelievably powerful, but it's a word that makes sense of this life. See, this psalmist, there are people who are trying to, to, um, to kill him, uh, to, to get rid of him, but it's, as he, he meditates on God's word, it makes sense of his life. And I just thought, just two illustrations of this. Um, think about the, the current debate on marriage. Uh, it's, 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 a, it's a hot topic. And um, there, are, there are people who want uh, to, to do away with marriage or, or to redefine marriage. And uh, this is not a new idea. And um, back in the 1930s, um, Freud had this uh, theory of sexual liberation. That if everybody could just have their have, we have sex, sexual freedom, we would have a much happier society. Well, there was a man called J.D. Udwin, and he was a British anthropologist. And he thought that uh, Freud was right. Um, but he realized that Freud hadn't done any research in, in just to, to proving his theory. So J.D. Udwin uh, spent his time studying many civilizations to see if Freud was right. And his conclusion was that Freud was wrong. He found that as he studied these civilizations throughout history, he found that the, the civilizations that were strong and stable and, and, and continued to exist were, were civilizations where uh, there was strict monogamy, marital monogamy, 
where marriage was between one, one woman and one man. And where he saw, where saw civilizations deviate from that, he saw that they often disappeared within three generations. See, God was, God's word says that marriage is a good thing for society. It's a good thing, and it's a, it's a, it is an absolute foundational thing for society. And the Bible makes sense of that. And as, as, as our society erodes those things, we see that there's lots of problems come with that. There's broken families. There are increased social, um, social bills to pay for all the damage that is caused. So God's word makes sense of, of life. That's just one example. But as, as, as we've seen that God's word brings things into creation and it brings things into order and and um, that there are connections with everything. Um, let me share an illustration by a man called Anthony Flew. Anthony Flew was uh, an atheist. And um, as he studied the world, he changed his mind and realized that there, there was some kind of uh, a spiritual being behind uh, creation. He didn't become a Christian, but he would describe himself as a theist. And he uses this illustration to describe the kind of, kind of the world that he saw. He says, imagine entering a hotel room on your next vacation. The CD player on the bedside table is softly playing a track from your favorite recording. The framed print over the bed is identical to the image that hangs over the fireplace at home. The room is scented with your favorite fragrance. You shake your head in, in amazement and you drop your bags on the floor. You're suddenly very alert. Well, you step over to the minibar and you open the door and you stare in wonder at the contents, your favorite beverages, your favorite cookies and candy, even the minibar, even, in, even the, branded, the brand of bottled water is your preference. Well, you turn from the minibar and then you gaze around the room and you notice the book on the desk is the latest volume by your favorite author. You glance into the bathroom where personal care and grooming products are lined up on the counter and each one as if, each one as if it was chosen specifically for you. You switch on the television. It is turned to your favorite channel. Chances are with each new discovery about the hospitable new environment, you'd be less inclined to think it was all merely a coincidence. You might wonder how that hotel manager acquired such detailed information about you. You might marvel at the meticulous preparation. You might even doubt, you might even double check what all this is going to cost, cost you. But you would certainly be inclined to believe that someone knew you were coming. You see, as we look at the world, I mean, as we look at how it's made up and how things connect with one another. And as we, as we look at the, the problems in our lives and as we read the Bible, we find that this world is set up for us and we find that God's word speaks directly into our, our problems and our issues. So the psalmist says that God's word, God's word firmly fixes the world. But here is his conclusion. Here's the consequence, rather, for seeing these, these, these three things. He says in verse 92, If your law had not been my delight, 
I would have perished in my affliction. See, he looks at this world around him and he sees that it's formed by God's words. And that gives him great confidence. It gives him delight. Now, think about this, because in the previous uh, section which we read last week, there was not much delight. In fact, there was much darkness. But I think as the psalmist, as he comes out of that darkness, and as he reflects on God's word and how, what God's word says about this world and what God's word says about his life, he finds great delight because it makes sense. And I think that's, that's, that's often our experience, isn't it, in our, in our struggles. As, God, as people bring God's word to bear in our life, and as they show how it speaks into life, it brings our heart delight because it makes sense of things. That is the consequence of recognizing that God's word is a word that is firmly fixed in the heavens, is a word that has created this world, and is a word that causes everything to, to serve him. Well, let's turn to the next, next section. The psalmist says, God's word firmly fixes the believer. Verse 93 to 96. I think this is astounding, because what the psalmist is saying here is that the God who creates, who speaks a word and brings the Pentlands into existence, that powerful word, can you imagine just a word being spoken and creation appearing in front of you? Is the same word that keeps him firmly fixed. He says, I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have preserved my life. The God who firmly fixes this world by his word is the same word that fixes us securely. That is an astounding. The word that keeps our heart pumping is the same word that will keep us firm. But the question is, what kind of God is this? And so he starts to paint this picture of this God who's brought this world into existence by his word. So in verse 94, he says, save me for I am yours. I think those, those, those four words at the end, at that first section, for I am yours, are, are, are just beautiful words, aren't they? He's able to say, I belong to you, God. This is not some distance God who just keeps the world ticking away. No, this is a God who desires relationship and is intimately involved with the Samus life. That's what God is like. He desires for us to be part um, for, he desires that we be part of his family. And so he's able to say, save me because I am yours. It's back to that kind of covenant words that we were thinking about last week. How, um, as I painted that picture last week of a, of a marriage, and a husband and wife, they make vows for one another. Uh, and it's not a corporate thing. They don't say to each other, well, I'll stick with you if you do what I want, and vice versa. No, they make promises that they're going to stick with each other through thick and thin. And what, gives us, what grows the love in a relationship is knowing that those words are kept. And so the psalmist has been thinking about these covenant words. And he takes great delight because he knows that God is not going to leave him. And so he can throw himself into God's hands and trust that God will 
take care of him. He says, I have sought out your precepts. But we could say here, well, is, is God only going to help us and come to our aid if we keep his law? Well, he says in verse 94, uh, 95, uh, sorry, 94, 94, save me for I'm yours. I have sought out your precepts. I think, that, I think the point here the psalmist is showing is that the, the law shows us how, how perilous we are, how perilous we are. And it makes us cast ourselves onto the mercy of God. And it makes us trust God's promises that he has in Christ, that he's, that he's made in Christ to come. See, the law is not just some dry, dusty words. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's all about what God has done and, and how God has revealed himself. And as we come close to God and see his grandeur and his, his, um, his greatness and how we can how we can't come near this God because of our, our sin and failure. It makes us trust this God. It makes us cast ourselves onto his mercy. See, the, the psalmist's appeal is not that he's kept the law, but that he, is, that he belongs to God. Well, then what does he do? So he says, save me for I am yours, and I have sought your, your law, your precepts. And then we get to verse 95. How, how does he behave when the trouble is, is nearby? See, the trouble hasn't disappeared. Where, where the psalm we read last week, the opposition and the affliction is almost in every verse. In this week, it's, it takes back seats. We only get it in a few, few occasions. And in verse 95, we read, The wicked are waiting to destroy me. They are still there. They are still present. And yet, he has got great hope. And I think what helps him stand firm is the next line. But I will ponder your statutes. See, he doesn't look. He doesn't. He doesn't look at his enemies. He doesn't. He's not looking there. He's looking elsewhere. He's looking to somebody much bigger than him. He says, "I will ponder your statutes." He's looking to his Father in heaven, the one who said, "I am. I am. Am yours." See, if we look at our, the, the, the troubles in our life, and if we, have our, if we have our gaze firmly fixed on those troubles, we're not going to stand firm. We're going to be starting to get shaky and anxious and afraid. What the psalmist says is we need to take our eyes off our troubles, and we need to take them to something much bigger than our troubles, and that is his Father in heaven. Well, there is a consequence to all these things. As we, as we saw that the, in the first section, the first three verses give us truths and a, and a consequence, while the same happens in the second section. Here it's where the psalmist ends. To all perfection I see a limit, but your commands are boundless. In other words, what he's saying is all man's projects are doomed to failure. But as I trust myself to your commands, they will give me life. That's, that's what he's saying. Um, this was this whole issue of man's projects all end in failure was a great trouble to to one of the Russian writer Leoy Tolstoy, and he he said these these words. My question, that which at the age of fifty brought me to the verge of suicide, was the simplest of questions. 
lying in the soul of every man, a question without an answer to which one cannot live. It was, what will come of what I am doing today or tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? Why should I live? Why wish for anything or do anything? It can, all, it can also be expressed thus. Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? See, death always ends our projects in failure. We cannot triumph over death. And the psalmist says the only way to have that confidence, the only way to have that security is to entrust ourselves to that word that, that is boundless, that will bring us life. In other words, we have to trust ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. The, uh, the writer in Isaiah says, if we trust ourselves, speaking of Christ, he says, he will not end in failure. So as we trust ourselves into Jesus, his, his projects, his work will not end in failure. And we see that on the cross. We see that Christ's work is finished and he triumphs over the powers of death and evil. And the psalmist wants us to, to, to point us to that Lord Jesus Christ, to point him to his project, to see that if we want absolute security, if we want our projects to succeed, that it is to make Christ our project and to put our trust in him and his death and his resurrection. Tolstoy sees that, that if left to our own devices, life is meaningless. Well, what does that look like for our troubles? How does this, how does this root into our lives? Well, let me address the person here tonight who, who maybe wouldn't describe themselves as a Christian. Well, I think the psalmist's question to you would be, what keeps you secure in your troubles? What makes sense of life to you? And the psalmist wanted to say to you, um, look at Jesus. He is the one that ultimately makes sense of life. So if you come here tonight and you, you don't know who this Jesus is, uh, and maybe you've been brought along by maybe a Christian friend, then can I encourage you to ask your Christian friend about who this man Jesus is? Find out about him, because he is a man who's going to make sense of your life. A great way to do this would be through a Christianity Explored course. And... There's a very easy way to do this. Um, you could ask your friend to get hold of a DVD, um, which you can get off Robin Turton, and watch it with them. Over, it takes something eight sessions. Watch it over with them and learn about who Jesus is. Christian Explored will take you through Mark's gospel and show you who Jesus is. And start to ask the question as you encounter this Jesus, how does he make sense of my life? That would be your task tonight if you know nothing of Lord Jesus Christ. Speak to your Christian friend and ask them to tell you about the Lord Jesus. But maybe you are a Christian and maybe you are in that, that battle zone. You, you lack resources and strength to, to, to keep going. Uh, let me just think about one struggle that we might have. And is the struggle of addiction. And I'm going to use the restriction the addiction of pornography. Addiction or pornography is, is one of these things that grips us, doesn't it? 
It says, I'm not going to do this, and I'm going to keep from, from doing this. That's what a kind of addiction is. Um, it's when our wants turn, into, turn away from God's wants. When my wants have to win over God's wants. And we can get to that place where we say to ourselves, I just can't do it anymore. I've got to give in. I've got to, to turn on the computer and fulfill my, my wants. And you've said to yourself, well, I've tried reading my Bible and I've tried praying, but none of these things works. Well, the psalmist wanted to say to you, well, you're underestimating the power of God's word. He wanted to say to you in that moment, remember that God's word created this world is the same world that's going to keep you from not turning the computer on, not walking into the shop and picking up the top shelf magazine. And he, and he, he has some helpful things to say. He says, do not look. Remember those verses we read? The wicked are waiting to destroy me, but I will, not ponder, but I will ponder your statutes. What we need to teach ourselves to do is to turn from gazing at our addiction and to start gazing at one who's bigger than our addiction. Reading this psalm, it's, it's a personal conversation with God. And that's where we need to start. We need to talk to God about our struggles and ask him to teach us what his words mean for our lives. But I don't think the psalmist wants us to stop and just make it personal. I think he'd want us to encourage to, to encourage for other help to come in. And so we need, we need other um, Christians to help us to grapple with God's word and to help God's word make sense of our lives. And so I want, if you're struggling with those kind of things, then I want you to send you away and I want you to think about this Sam, and I want you to, to think about somebody who's bigger than yourselves. And I want you to um, encourage your Christian friend, if you can be brave enough, to help, to ask, to ask them to help you to see how great and wonderful God's word is. We need people to help us to see that God is much bigger than wh- who we often think he is and how God's word applies to our lives. So I hope you've seen that it's this amazing truth that God's word that created this world is the same word that keeps us rooted and established in life. Let's pray.